I had a, a wonderful time about 10 years or so ago. We were living in East Tennessee, uh, not far from Knoxville, and somebody gave us really good seats to a Keith and Kristen Getty concert. Like, I'm talking second, third row, something like that. We were down front, and uh, so we went to this concert, and it was on a tour they were doing of mostly Christmas songs, right? It was in late November, early December. And so they sang lots of Christmas carols as well as some of their better known songs like In Christ Alone, which you're probably familiar with. And at that Christmas concert with these Christian performers uh, leading us in, in a lot of times in worship, really, I wonder if you can guess what got the loudest response as we sang together in the congregation, so to speak, in the crowd what song it was that had folks singing the loudest there, little hints, in Knoxville, Tennessee, the home of the University of Tennessee, the volunteers. Okay, I won't, I won't keep you in suspense, because if I gave you a million guesses, you would not guess, unless you heard me tell this story before. And then you might not remember, but it's a song that had absolutely nothing to do with Christmas, as far as I can tell from the lyrics. And it had about nothing to do with Keith and Kristen Getty. And it had everything to do with community. And before I tell you a little more about that, we're looking at Mark 1, 9 through 13 today. As we continue our series of, of following Jesus and notifications that matter. And here in Mark 1, 9 through 13 is a picture of community. And what we most long for and what Jesus alone could provide for us, that we would be together with him. And that brought me to my mind this incident at the concert, because what the crowd was spontaneously singing was a song called Rocky Top. And unless you're from the South, and especially an SEC football fan probably, you have no idea what that means. And I lived there for 10 years, and I I couldn't tell you much more beyond something like good old Rocky Top, something, 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 Rocky Top, Tennessee. Sorry. Everybody who's a volunteer fan is tuning out now. Uh, but it was a Christmas concert, and, and why are we singing Rocky Top, which was a rally song, especially for the football team there at the University of Tennessee? Well, at one point in the concert, they would introduce the different performers, and when they introduced the drummer, who was from very close by, uh, less than an hour away from Knoxville, and a big, apparently, UT fan. As he was introduced by name, he lifted his shirt, and he had on a bright orange University of Tennessee shirt that was very obvious. As soon as you started to see the colors, you knew what it was. And it said Tennessee across the front, and little V for volunteers, or T, I mean T for volunteers, Tennessee volunteers. And the crowd, I think, just spontaneously started singing Rocky Top. He might have started it, I can't remember. But after the singing stopped, and this is the part that especially I want you to think about. After the singing stopped, and we're talking, you know, I don't know, hundreds of people at a Christmas concert. The drummer standing there up front as he was introduced, and his shirt still kind of hanging, you know, the orange showing through. His arms open wide to embrace the crowd said, my people, 
And it, you could just, that's what that was about, was just this expression of community that we knew each other in, in ways and felt connected deeply and expressed it through this song, randomly it would seem, and just this, this raw emotional response. And as he said, my people, the, the crowd even got it louder cheering, like, yeah, yeah we're Tennessee volunteer people, Woo! And I thought, that's weird and really kind of beautiful and strange, and <laughs> it's gonna make a good sermon illustration someday. And here it is. So Mark 1, 9 to 13 is an expression, if you will see it, of Jesus saying, my people. And our response ought to be to sing along, ought to be to cheer and find that to be enough. Rejoicing in the fact that he has made us to be a community with him. So would you read with me here, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 of God's holy, inspired, infallible, community-building word. Mark 1.9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him and a voice came out of the heavens you are my beloved son in you I am well pleased and immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him this is God's Word. Lord, would you meet us here? Help us to get a sense of the community that you alone provide, but yet you don't want to keep to yourself, or even just to us, but to share. Meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the story of the concert has an even deeper level of meaning for me because, humanly speaking, uh, that concert experience with that guy saying, you, you, my people, is part of the providential working that brought me back here to my home, in a sense. I, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, which basically we all there felt like we were kind of a suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, not another state altogether, at least I did. Eagles fan, you know, Flyers fan, Phillies fan, Sixers fan, you know, growing up in the culture here. And to have that experience of community just in that little snapshot gave me a longing for my people. Um, and, and we all have that longing, right? There's, there's a people that if you're not with them, you know, you think this would kind of fulfill me and, and, and give me the joy. These are the people that understand me and I can relate to them. We have shared experiences and it, it could be, you know, sports fans. It could be uh, uh, alumni of some institution. It could be church. That there are those communities. And we were made for community to be together. But they all, the reality is, though, even at its best, which rarely happens, 
those communities still often leave a little hole. And we have the sense that maybe there's more. That maybe, you know, having friends that are into the eagles or whatever is wonderful. And having shared experiences, but there seems to be, maybe there's something more profound. And, and in fact, that's why Jesus came into the world and went into the wild was that we might have that kind of community. That we might have that experience. His, his journey that we read about here in this passage uh, it's into the wilderness for baptism. Remember uh, John in, in the verses right before this was out in the wilderness. We read in verses uh, 3 and 4, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. That Jesus went out into the wilderness to be baptized by John. And then immediately after his baptism, the Spirit drives him further out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That all those experiences of that Jesus came to undergo are about serving his people, about identifying with us, about being a part of our community because we could never be a part of his community unless he did that, that he would come down to be with us. In other words, Jesus went into the wild, including just coming to earth, but then even now in this passage in the wilderness, that you might live at peace in the world. As we look through this passage, to put it another way, Jesus went into the wild to tame three specific things. And first of all, he went into the wild to tame the wrath of God. Verses 9 through 11 show us this. Jesus came to tame the wrath of God, submitting as one of us. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. What was baptism all about? The verses right before this tell us. We looked at it last week. And the gist of it is in verses 4 and 5. John the Baptist appeared preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of of sins. In verse 5, all the country is going out to him, all the people of Jerusalem, and what were they doing? They were being baptized by John, by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, Jesus had no sin. Jesus had done nothing wrong. He had nothing to repent of and no need to confess. So why is he out there undergoing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? John had a real problem with that. In fact, Mark kind of skips over this as he does, just hurling forward in the story. But if you flip over to Matthew chapter 3, you see his response there. Matthew 3.13, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Matthew 3 verse 14 says... But John but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill 
all righteousness. And then he, John, permitted him, Jesus, to be baptized by him. In other words, Jesus came to undergo baptism by John for no other reason than to identify with his people. To do the things that his people were doing as an expression of a desire for righteousness, to be right with God. That he would undergo this baptism, though he was not guilty, though he had done nothing wrong, he takes up that servant role to be with his people. He came to identify with his people, submitting as one of us, yet with a very key difference. That he was obedient like none of us. Submitting as one of us, though he was obedient like none of us. Look at verse 11. A voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you or with you, I am well pleased. The voice comes at the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. As he's now publicly declaring himself before everyone, as John the Baptist announces him, this voice comes, with you I'm well pleased. You're my beloved son. The the voice again comes at the peak of Jesus' ministry, somewhat of a pun, but somewhat of a reality, as he's on the mountain of transfiguration, we call it. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus goes up with just a couple of disciples and has this experience on the mountaintop. And again, a cloud overshadows them. And Mark 9, 7 says, A voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Jesus came fully pleasing the Father, obedient without sin, yet submitting as one of us, obedient like none of us, that He might intervene for all of us. That He might intervene for all of us. Look at verse 10. This is the heart of this passage, I think. Verse 10. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. John prepared the way. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing the way for one who's mightier than me. And this sign of the descending Spirit was what God had told him ahead of time. That's the one that you're to announce as the Messiah. We looked at that last week. And so here's Jesus. He comes to the baptism and... and There's this vision of of the heavens opening. And that word opening, is that's that's, that's weak, to put it bluntly. That's a weak word. It ought to say something more like ripped open, rent in two. It's the same word that's used of the curtain, the veil at the temple later on in Mark's Gospel, where it's torn in two. That this word is about, that's in Mark 15, 38. This, this word is about something being torn apart and ripped open. Because I don't know about you, but there, I've never seen like a door in heaven. It's like, oh, it just swung open. The heavens just opened. That was the time when they opened. Now they're closing. They're like a garage door or something. No, it's like ripping open. It's completely unnatural and unexpected that this would happen. It's rent in two. This doesn't happen. It's ripped wide open. And it's, I think... It seems to me that to be a fulfillment of what Isaiah prayed for in chapter 64, verse 1 of Isaiah, when he said, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
And in context, he's not talking about come down and visit us and make things wonderful. He's talking about coming down and bringing judgment. That's the background I'm thinking most people would experience when they hear, as, as Bible-knowing people, that the heavens are ripped open. God's coming in judgment. But what do we see? What happens? The heavens are torn open and the Holy Spirit of God descends like a flaming fire, like the angel of death, like the judgment, like the sword of God. Does your Bible say that? What does it say? It descends like a dove. I know some people are afraid of birds and doves and all, but I mean, really, a dove. They're not very intimidating. They're, in fact, a symbol of peace. And it comes down, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, gently, you know, maybe whatever it looks like for the Holy Spirit to coo, I don't know, you know, comes down, and a fatherly voice speaks from heaven with rebuke, with admonition, no, with affirmation, with appreciation, he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is, this is Jesus among his people. This is Jesus there amongst a bunch of people admitting that they're sinners, that they've fallen short of God's standard for them. And saying, you know what, I've messed up and I want to go a different direction. And God says, that's wonderful. And I'm providing what you need, in fact, right now. Look at my son. I'm pleased with him. He's perfectly obedient. He's submitting as one of you. He's obedient like none of you. And there he is intervening, interceding for all of you. And I'm pleased with him. I'm coming, he says, not in judgment and wrath, but with acceptance and affirmation for my son. You know, this, is, this is a huge theological principle underlying this that we don't talk about very much. The, the active righteousness of Jesus for his people. That he did what was right before God. That he always did uh, the things that are acceptable to God, which is the essence of righteousness. It's, it's right with Godness, we could say. And this is Jesus, right? That we often think of the cross and the way it takes away our sin by bearing the punishment for us in that passive suffering way, right? That's wonderful. We need that. And we need this. Because if you took away the sin, I think as R.C. Sproul, I was reading this week, said this, if you take away the sin, you, you still have the need to obey. That we won't measure up, right? Wipe your slate clean today, all forgiven. You're going to start racking up debts again within seconds. But what Jesus did for us is not only to take away the sin on the cross, but to live the life we should have lived on the earth. Obedient, well-pleasing to the Father, fulfilling all righteousness. That's why he submitted to baptism to say, look, I'm fulfilling every single thing 
that God's people need to fulfill. I'm doing everything that needs to be done. Pleasing God and suffering the just punishment. He's intervening for us. He came not to be served, Mark tells us in 10, chapter 10, verse 45, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And it becomes a little more clear as we just keep going here on not only Jesus coming to tame the wrath of God, but to tame the rebellion of Satan. Look at verses 12 and 13. We see that Jesus came to tame the rebellion of Satan, fighting our battle, taking on from this idea of intervening for us. Look at verse 12. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. He's immediately, the Spirit impels him. And that, that's actually the word is much stronger than that. It, it, it's definitely impelling, but it's actually the word that, that's used for casting out demons. You know, exercising power. It's like Jesus had no choice. He was driven by the Spirit while he still had choice, right? Don't want to exaggerate it. But he's driven by the Spirit, impelled to go out into the wilderness where he is there for 40 days, fasting, praying, and eventually being tempted by Satan. And again, with a, with a Bible knowledge and background, as you think about this, you hear the words wilderness emphasized again and again, and you probably call to mind Israel, and they're wandering in the wilderness as a part of judgment. After they had failed in their deliverance from Egypt, rebelling against God, not going when God wanted them to go, then changing their mind and going. God said, look, you got, you, you're not going to go in. You're going to wander in the wilderness. Now, on top of that, then you think, okay, so that's the Exodus maybe a little bit there. Then, then you read of the temptation by Satan, and, and you can't help but then think of Adam and Eve in the garden, confronted by Satan and tempted by him. That it's a very real thing that Jesus so identifies with his people that he comes intervening for us. In fact, he's fighting the battles for us, fighting our battles that, that, that we've lost over all time. You know, it's a huge part of the message of, of the Old Testament. Everybody did everything they could, God gave them everything that they, they needed, and they still fell short. They all failed. And Jesus comes along as the only one who did the things that God wanted for his people collectively, for his people individually, for Adam as the first head of the human race, for Israel as the primary community and example. Everyone failed. And Jesus comes along and is the only one who succeeds. He is the, the second Israel. He is the second Adam. R.C. Sproul little lengthier passage, but it's so good I want to read it to you. It says, The second Adam, just like the first Adam, was put in a place of testing where he was exposed to Satan's assaults. During Adam and Eve's temptation by the serpent, they were in the midst of a lush garden where they had every imaginable food at their disposal. Their bellies were filled. Furthermore, they were enjoying intimate companionship, a woman and a man together, without sin. 
in any way marring or disfiguring their relationship or the fellowship that they felt with God. And the second Adam comes along and his test, R.C. Sproul says, took place not in a garden paradise, but in a desolate wilderness. He was absolutely alone and no human companionship or fellowship. Not only that, his test took place in the midst of a fast, 40 days with nothing to eat. He had a human nature and that human nature was ravaged by hunger. And it was only after he had sunk into this lonely, supremely weakened condition, then the prince of hell came to him. It's like God said, you guys had it really, really, really good. I couldn't have given you any more and you failed. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm really, really what you need. And in the worst circumstances possible, I will always succeed. God put every conceivable obstacle in these circumstances and Jesus fought our battles and was victorious with God's word. That's his main weapon, was God's word. Again, Mark doesn't get into this at all. But Matthew shows the victory comes with God's word three times over in Matthew chapter 4. We read Jesus saying to the temptations of Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, you shall worship the Lord God only, and Him you shall serve. Every time the temptation comes, Jesus answers with the Word of God, confessing His trust in God and in God's ways. Jesus did the wilderness without wandering by the power of God's Word. Jesus resisted Satan without sustenance by the bread of life. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was obedient without others to help. Jesus tamed the wrath of God and the rebellion of Satan, bringing victory over, and this is our last point, the restlessness of humanity. Taming the wrath of God, taming the rebellion of Satan, necessarily, if you understand what Jesus is saying and doing, that necessarily then tames the restlessness of your heart, the restlessness of humanity, the things that mark us as a people that feel alienated and, and alone, as a people who will substitute images for the reality, who will settle for followers on social media rather than faces in their presence. This this wrath of God, rebellion of Satan, Jesus taming those then brings this taming to our restless hearts. That's where he goes. And Lord willing, this is going to be our focus next week in verses 14 and 15. Jesus comes along and says, here's the good news. Preaching the gospel, verse 14, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The restlessness of humanity is conquered by the good news that all we need to do is repent and believe 
that the kingdom has come, that Jesus is now our king, that, that we can live with peace because he has procured it, that, that God is, if your faith is in Jesus, God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. And Satan has no power over you. God is pleased with you. You are accepted in His sight only because of what Jesus has done both on the cross and in His perfect life. That that makes you acceptable in the sight of God. <clears throat> There's nothing else you need to do. And anything you can do is going to mess it up. Except for just putting your confidence and trust in Jesus. That He's done what needed to be done actively and passively. And that Satan has no power over you. That Christ has conquered him. And if you would take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, you too can have that same victory. In Christ. Not in your own strength, but in Christ. What, what makes you restless? If you know that Christ has conquered the wrath of God and the rebellion of Satan, why are you still restless? What is, what is missing that keeps you from being satisfied the chances are it's, it's things that maybe expose you as a, a sinner or a weak person. That's the entrance requirement for the kingdom. To repent and confess your sins. To believe the good news that Jesus covers that too. There is nothing you can bring up. There is nothing that embarrasses you. There is nothing that is weak about you that God has not said, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Not only accept it, but I will make it better. And if you will trust in Jesus, I'll make you stronger. I'll give you progress. There's nothing you need to fear. Admit your mistakes and believe that I accept you. You know, what causes restlessness is, is it things that, that resist you, things that beat you. When Christ has won the victory, even death itself has no power over you. You're free from that. He's gone before you and risen victorious over it. There is literally nothing on earth because the wrath of God is subtle. Because the rebellion of Satan has been tamed. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. You will always and only hear, I love you. I am pleased with you. Do you believe that? Does that scratch the deep itch within you? You know, I think of that, that, that community I experienced there in the theater in, in Knoxville at the Getty concert. And the drummer, you know, with his outstretched arms embracing the crowd, his shirt still up and the bright orange of Tennessee colors there shining through, just basking in the community and the fellowship that they had that they just now expressed by singing... Uh, Rocky Top, which is like a weird song. Go Google the lyrics later. It's just like, okay. But it's a thing, right? It's, it's, it, 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 it's this community, and he's standing there with his arms outstretched, and as they stop, and he says, my people, and they shout it even louder, in joy, that they're together, they're, they're accepted, that just whoever this drummer is, they didn't even know his name before the show, probably. They probably don't remember. I don't remember it now. And that was his introduction. But that acceptance that we're together 
acknowledging you're my people. Brothers and sisters, think about this. I don't know the color of the shirt that Jesus has on under his robes, right? I don't, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure it's not volunteer orange. But I do know it, it's probably red. Because I know that his outstretched arms that embrace you have the nail scars still to this day. That the feet that he stands on, that his robe probably don't cover all the way, have the nails, scars in them. And the side that he would probably show to you if you asked, as the place where they pierced him with a spear. And he says to you, now restored, now risen, now glorified, Jesus says, my people, my people, my people. There's nothing separating you from this love because he's done it. My people, he says to you, my people. Be at peace. Yeah. Things are messed up. There are wars and rumors of wars. It's politicians that actually kind of got something done yesterday, like last minute, signing that thing to get the, the budget approved and all, right? It's a messed up world. And in the midst of that, Jesus says to you, you're my people. You're my people. You don't need to be restless. You don't need to live in fear. You don't need to hold on tight to what little that you have. You don't need to be afraid to reach out and share what's on your heart because you're accepted. You don't need to be afraid of the powers of darkness because he's conquered them. Jesus came in, went into the wild that you might live at peace in this world. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for entering into this world for us, living perfectly for us, dying sacrificially for us, rising victoriously for us, sending forth the same Spirit that was with you, empowering your human flesh alongside of your divine nature for the ministry that you engaged in and now is available to us that we might have peace that passes understanding. Fill your people, Lord. Lift us up into your presence. Strengthen us for whatever you have before us that we might truly embrace our position as your people. For you are our Redeemer. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.